0: My life fades, the vision dims,
1: all that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos,
0: ruined dreams, this wasted land. Hello, and welcome to another. Episode of From the Wastes. My name is Evan, and I am, as always, your faithful companion through this desolate and blighted wasteland. Today, we'll be chatting with Arthur Walker. Arthur is the creator of the sci-fi dystopian biopunk series, the Earlborough Saga, as well as being an avid gamer, being not only a player but developer as well. He is also an, an exceptional graphic artist. Arthur, welcome to the Wastes. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me here, sir. Oh, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, what came first, the gamer, the writer, or the artist?
1: I I would have to say the writer. Um, when I was young, I was very bad at writing and I was very bad at reading. I did not perform at grade level. I had a really, really hard time. And uh, I basically limped through the first and second grades being mostly just behind the, behind the curve. And my third grade teacher took me aside and was like, this isn't, you know, not good. And, um, I stayed after class and didn't go to recess probably three days a week. And all I did was practice penmanship and writing and, um, getting to the point where I could read, at grade level. And as soon as I could, I took off. I read everything in the school library and I was writing all kinds of stuff. At the time, my handwriting was atrocious. It was difficult to read. And, um, I went to a writing retreat after my third grade at the university of Idaho and sat down with other people. And, and that's when I first got the idea that writing was, um, a really good way to express myself, but it was frustrating. I mean, this is mid 80s, so I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have a word processor. Um, so my handwriting needed to be better and it was recommended to me that I start taking art classes and drawing and try to gain a, a, a greater degree of somatic intelligence with my, with my hands so that, you know, and, and I tried playing musical instruments to try to, uh, Work on my hand eye coordination. And it wasn't until the first NES came out that I had a, I guess, a vehicle for working <laughs> on that <laughs> long hours in the way that it would keep my attention span. So it kind of all, I would say, happened in the mid 80s when I was a kid, um, going from, you know, barely being able to read and write to um, being able to, to drawing to try to get a better command of my hand-eye coordination and then um, becoming a gamer as a result of uh, the NES coming out um, shortly thereafter, I think. And um, all of those things basically fused together, born from a desire to be able to be like everyone else. And I'm still not there. I'm still working on it. (laughs) <laughs> um,
0: I know you're a, you're a big fan of the, of the tabletop games and, mm-hmm. uh, um, and you've been working on, do you develop your, your own games or do you just do, uh, the, the graphic? I don't know. I'm not sure what you call it, the graphic design or the, the, um, I'm not sure what you call that where you, where you develop the, the, graphics the UX where...
1: and the U, UI U, user experience and the user interface. Okay. And... Correct. Yeah. graphical elements of the games. I do, yeah. I do, I work with a, a, a partner um, who started working at Microsoft back when they were pushing their own people to develop games for the Windows Phone platform because they were having a hard time attracting developers. And this is a guy, we used to make games when we were kids on our old, he had an old IBM and I had an old Tandy 1000 the, the 16 color monitor <laughs> oh, wow. and we used to make games and put them on you know three and a quarter floppy discs and trade to play uh, using basic and he went on to um, work for a bunch of different software companies and landed at Microsoft right when they were starting to do development and he w- wanted to make games and he tried to hook up with some other people didn't really work he, he really wanted to hook up with the creative he reached out with he reached out to me and I said well I spent the last 18 months developing a pen and paper tabletop role-playing game called Storytelling Sciences, specifically for the purpose to prototype worlds, characters, and things for books that I want to write. And I sent him my documents that I, and and I'd logged about 3,000 playtest hours on it by then, and uh, not myself, but with help, help of other people. And he looked at it and he was like, "We should make game. We should make video games out of this." And so we made one game and put it on the Windows Phone. It was okay. It was a pretty good game for our first outing. It was a little martial arts game, some little graphical elements and things. It was super, super, totally us, not knowing what we were doing. And now, <laughs> now I've gone into where, um, and I was leaning really heavy on my illustration talent at the time and not doing a lot of pixel art until I started building animation for that game. And that's when we decided we were going to go for the pixel art aesthetic um, and start building more retro looking games. And we built a number of games that we have never published. We only play ourselves. <laughs> but we're, we're, the plan is to take all of those games and, and pull them into an anthology um, and the overarching theme is the the game environment the game world that all these different games take place in is a far away world far away uh, uh, all the way in the future and The planets being terraformed by these huge terraforming engines and they're communicating back with the corporate entity back in their home system, but then they lose contact mm. and some of the terraformers Um, start to develop tribes some of the artificial intelligences on the terraformers go mad some of the artificial intelligences in the orbitals overhead start trying to find people on the surface who can help them um, build a more cohesive society and and they have their own secret agendas obviously and we have like we have a, a Um, a retcon base zero game which is actually the terraformer where you do basically human resource management for a terraformer and there's you build like little places inside the terraformer that help it work better we have an adept agent which is like uh, like a like a three quarter view where you do secret missions to try to infiltrate other people's terraformers we have one that's called raging rickshaw which is basically you, are a, uh, you, you basically drive a rig through the streets of the terraformers to carry out missions, and you can outfit these rickshaws with guns and armor and everything else. And it has a very post-apocalyptic feel because a terrible tragedy has befallen this world. It was being terraformed for colonization. Something went wrong. All the people left behind are having to try to figure out what's going on. The corporate entities that are remaining are still trying to do their things and we've been building these games probably for four years and uh, we've got another one that is uh, where you build the orbitals it's called Audacious Orbital is the code name for that one um, and uh, I know I'm forgetting one um Oh, there's Earth Inclusive, which is a rover game where you have a little rover and you go around looking for supplies and you try to build settlements and things. That's the other one. Oh. Okay. I and um, what always happens is, like, we were working on the terraformer game and I built these little landers that you could send out with with different individuals to do scouting missions and stuff. And the landers that I did were really cool. And I sent a. a, a uh, a message to my my dev partner and was like I really like these landers do you want to do a game around just landers <laughs> <laughs> and it and it just spirals out of control so like it's it's become this um sort of never ending hobby but it all started from a pen and paper game that i built and developed um, called storytelling sciences that was used to prototype different things mm-hmm. um for, for books and uh, the first anyone ever heard of Euroboro Saga, it was being prototyped and people actually playing characters at the table. Um, and back then we didn't—I had—I didn't have drones. I only I had, a, I had three people that were—I had a telemechanic, a, a cyborg mercenary, and a canine metasapien mm. at the table playtesting it. And that's how the seed of Euroboro Saga started was at that table. Um, I forgot what the question was. Did I answer it? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, yeah, most definitely,
0: most definitely. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sitting here just, you know, just learning all the history of this, kind of being fascinated and forgetting that we're actually, you know, recording this. Um, <clears throat> uh, so the games did, or, or, or rather, the books did uh, kind of evolve from, from the games that you were working on. Um, it sounds like. And why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us about the Uroboros saga? Um, A, I'm really curious as to why why you called it that, and why specifically you you spell it the way you do. Um, it also, um, yeah, it just you know let's, let's talk about you know the drones and 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 Taylor and. And
1: uh, let's just get into that. Okay. Well, the the reason I spelled it that way was some of it was to avoid confusion with other with other IP that's out there, and some of it was that they didn't really start spelling it with an O at the front until mm-hmm. pretty. I I don't believe. I think it was recently. Like I did all. I can't remember all of my <laughs> all of the reasons why I decided to go that route. But some of it was um uh I, I think what it really boiled down to is I wanted to spell it in a way that was both correct and not um a modern usage and a a common usage I wanted to to stand out a little bit um some of the motivation for writing the books in the first place was to test out the self-publishing circuit just see what it's like and um I use the first three books of Yoruba Saga basically as templates to, to self publish other works in the future and make my mistakes. And I, my intent was, well, I'll I'll publish these three books and then I'll, I'll pull them off line. And yeah, I wasn't going to keep them up. Really? And I started doing some promotion for them on Twitter because I wanted to get some feedback. Um, uh, and I was looking mostly for aesthetic feedback, like what the interiors look like and everything else. Cause the designer that I was working with that does the interior and uh, helps arrange the exterior of the books. Um, she hadn't done a lot of them yet at that time and wanted some feedback as well. Cause she w- she wanted to build that into her business cause she was she was doing a lot of uh, product development for companies. She designed a Pepsi can, you know, stuff like that. But like working with, with, Creatives to do like album covers and books and things like that. She wanted some feedback too, so I, I got on Twitter specifically for the purpose of trying to promote the books to get that feedback, <laughs> and ended up, not really on purpose, building kind of a small following. And pretty soon, I was like, I'm gonna have to write more of these books now, <laughs> um, and that's why like the ending of the third book kind of has this sunny the end ending mm-hmm. because I wasn't when I when I published book 3 I was not intending to publish 4. I had more books designed um because I had pushed content back to keep inside my 65,000 word limit but um that's kind of how it started was was and that's why the first two covers uh they're, they're changed now, but it, uh, the first two print covers and the, the digital covers were – I basically just did a quick render because I was shopping for cover artists. Oh. I, I, I sent those to, to my designer. I was like, this is what I want the covers to look like. I want to find someone who can do this. And she's like, you should just maybe try a little harder and do the covers yourself. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm going to shop around anyway. And this is – I mean, this is – probably I'd only been doing digital artwork probably three or four years at that point. Um, so I didn't I don't I didn't have probably three thousand hours doing that or two thousand hours doing that. I was I was still getting my feet underneath me and, and learning how to do that. So um and that's right around the time that my dev partner approached me. And I pushed my illustration skills to the limit on our first game. Went back and did, redid the covers that are on the first two books now, Um, because it it didn't used to be Eamon and Abby on the front of the of the this of book two. Um, It was it was two other characters, but a lot of the impetus for adding the dystopian elements of the books came from the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And seeing the um, economic collapse and recession that that basically came through um, eight, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, And and, uh, a lot of that was, um, you know, when I was looking at that and I was building... Uh, an environment for writing dystopian fiction um, I drew I draw a lot from the real world But I try very very hard to put The dystopian elements of the book Into the far future Like A lot of what I put in the book I'm like I hope this is not going to ever be A thing in my lifetime
0: <laughs> Right
1: And <laughs> I, I, I had to rewrite Large swaths of five I had to re- rewrite large swaths of five and some of six because of stuff that happened in the real world. And I'm having to rewrite parts of eight or parts of nine rather, mm. um, because of stuff happening in the real world. Lots, large parts of book nine take place in Mexico. Oh, and yeah. So I'm having to, I'm having to, uh, uh, uh I, I don't want to give away any spoilers, especially for people who haven't read book eight, but, um uh, uh, I put this in front of my beta re- beta readers and my wife and was like this is the arc from book four that lead frogs to eight and this is how it resolves in nine and they're like yeah feels a little preachy <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like it's not on purpose I designed this like week literally like like weeks months and years and years ago respectively and was not you know and that's that's the danger of writing dystopian fiction particularly is that sometimes the things that you think are a far-flung dystopian future they happen in the real world like right uh they they creep up on us and um i wanted to write something that would um lean on my love of um of, uh, stoicism and neoplatonism and, um, Gnosticism. Um, I really like obscure ancient folklore, so having super long lived people in the books. Um, and in particular using the Euroboros and the Euroboros symbol on the covers, Mm -hmm. um, which I've had people ask why that, why the old symbol and the new, kind of red helixy looking, not helixy, but like the red kind of, uh, uh kind of the abstract Yoroboros symbol that's on seven. There isn't any Yoroboros symbol on eight. And what I, what I'm telling people is, um, that because it's a side story with Eamon and doesn't really relate specifically to the cabal, that I didn't want to put it on the cover the reality the truth is that, that between me and the designer we just forgot it, <laughs> it, it went to print I got it back and I was like it was literally like a week later I'm looking at the cover I'm like what did we but it's not here what did I do so oh, eight no yeah <laughs> oh that's funny
0: it worked out great though because you know with eight being kind of a you know more of a side story
1: yeah, you know, I think I mean, that that's what I'll do in the future. Is if if it's kind of a side story, I might I might make that the I might continue to forget to put it on the cover.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you you, you had mentioned because you kind of, um, you know, you have arcs that you have within this within this, within this series, and <clears throat> I can't remember when I came. I think I came into it maybe a was it I don't know if it was book three or book book four. I don't. Mm-hmm. It was right around there, and uh, and uh, I obviously went back. You know, I started with one, two, and and and, uh, and i obviously I've read them all up to eight now, and um. Uh, I thought somewhere along this, lo- uh, somewhere along the way, you you mentioned something about having arcs uh, take place within like you know book one, two, and three was an arc, four, mm-hmm. five, and six was an arc and 7, 8, and 9 will be an arc, but then you would just mention something about uh, book oh, now I can't remember what you said book 9 will continue, or book 8 will continue the arc from book 4 it,
1: it, it there's a there's a character that makes a brief appearance in 4 mm-hmm. and, and he resurfaces in 8 oh,
0: and he's, okay
1: he's important um he's on the he's on the he's on the cover of 8 and he's not Eamon.
0: Oh.
1: Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Um and he he is re- he is reasonably important mm-hmm. um and I I put him in I put him in the story um with the intent of doing something very different than I'm going to end up doing. Um, and that's, like I said, uh, the real world kind of triggered a massive rewrite of nine. Okay. Um, so, um, cause one of the things I, I you know, I really want to do with the Euroboro saga is make people think I want them to look at the decisions that characters make and the morality. And I, am a philosopher by training. That's what I, Studying in college, so um, like I, I mean, in designing artificial intelligences for the book, and and in particular um, terrestrial intelligent agents, I read a lot of Karsgard. Um I read her book on self constitution, which is a book on on identity, and I read a lot of Derek Parfit on what matters. I'm, i I made it through his first gigantic, huge, thick book. And I'm on to second, and that's kind of like, I mean, that's his work is, I mean, influenced a lot of sci-fi, like the in Star Trek: The Next Generation, where there's two Rikers Mm -hmm. because of a teleporter accident. That's actually a problem that Derek Parfit grapples with um, in in trying to. Identify, trying to quantify human identity, and also have different models of the soul for people to lean on as far as like the metaphysics of being human, mm-hmm. and and designing art, you know, artificial intelligences and terrestrial intelligent agents. Agents, um, I wanted them to have the ability to constitute, self-constitute their identity in ways that would be different from humans and noticeable um, and have artificial intelligences be able to go from, you know, living on a mainframe and then going into a terrestrial form where they're actually able to take a, take a body and roam around. But that's bad for them depending on how big they are because Mm -hmm. they don't have the space to write and rewrite themselves when, if they're using an an ICT model like that Um, and the uh, information and communications technology model like that, Mm -hmm. um, and uh so in in going for um going from four to five to six and having i tried i tried to take something from one two and three that didn't get resolved or didn't feel resolved and put it in four five and six Mm -hmm. and that was that was perfidy Oh. And I tried to take something that didn't get, that didn't get because like I I I still will have people, um, they'll tell me I loved perfidy. I can't believe you blew him up at the warehouse. <laughs> and I'm like, just just keep reading. It's it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's going to be okay. As we know sort in, of
0: as we know in in, <clears throat> in these stories, um, yeah. It, it, well, yeah, I don't want to. Spoil anything him, but nothing, <laughs> I'm trying not to, but n- n- nothing is concrete or set in stone. I guess I don't know. It, um, the, the The characters that you have in these books, uh, the different types of characters. You're talking about, you know, Metasapiens. You're talking about uh, terrestrial agents. You're talking about drones. Um, what are they? You know, what 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 are these different types of of characters that that take place in this in this
1: uh, in these in these books okay um, I'll tell you what I can <laughs> um, I have not re- I'll, I'll say this straight let's talk about drones first okay. I have not revealed the full unfiltered truth about drones oh. I've alluded to um, some things early in the books and um, if you really um uh, if you really want to understand, if you if you want to try to figure out maybe or get clues into what really is going on with drones, go back and read all of Doctor Helmut's dialogue. Okay, because he drops sense, but what, on, what is? Go ahead, sorry. I
0: was just because on the surface it it seems to me that drones um, are basically a, a class of um, uh, well creatures. I don't know what uh, a class of beings that are created for specific purposes.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they they were know. genetically contrived uh, beings based on the human, uh, human genes mm-hmm. and modified for... Uh, basically, humans wanted to colonize the solar system, mm-hmm. but they come to understand that don't have the biological tolerances to to kind of make first landing survive long term build the underground that needs to be built in those places as a basis and then there was um and this is another thing that i don't really talk about in the books but i allude to is that um like port montaigne is 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 built on old atlanta and that's because the sea level came up so high that they had to actually wall it off mm-hmm. and then build a new, t- a new city. And that's why Port Montaigne has several tiers of city. Um, and the drones were all along all the coastlines and in places that in places that had been ravaged by natural disaster and it to be shorn up from below, um, uh, that's why there are drones. In um, um, I can't tell you that. Doesn't <laughs> happen yet. Uh, <laughs> um, d- drones were designed specifically for um, uh, the the first drones were were Type threes, heavier industrial labor, mm-hmm. um, and then Type ones came when. In the fullness of time, Mars and various colonies started to revolt and build their own governments and their own systems of uh, their own economies and things like that. And drones were used um, for the purpose of maintaining order in those places. And then later on, uh, the central global government tried to deploy them on Earth to put down civil unrest as a result of the... Death and debt cycle that virtually the entire planet is mm-hmm. has been has been uh, being devoured by, and that's when all the Type One drones basically um, vanish into the underground and hang out with the Type Threes. Um, there are not supposed to be any Type Two, Type Four, or Type Five drones. And six type six drones are psychics, and they're not supposed to exist either. But they do. Right. Um, that's not to say that there aren't type four, or type two drones, or haven't been in the past. Um, and uh, I'm, we're, uh, I'm currently rebuilding storytelling sciences to create a to recreate the Euroboro saga. Um, role-playing game, tabletop role-playing game, and that's one of the things that we're going in on design is trying to figure out, okay, are we going to let people play a Type 5 pleasure and entertainment drone? Like, fills, fills off thematically,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but, but um, that I mean, a- a- entertainment drones could merely be um, radio jockeys on faraway worlds. Um, they don't necessarily... Uh, have to be as I've portrayed them in the book so far with Metasapiens which, let's talk about them Metasapiens are um, a genetically contrived worker class of beings that were um, built from uh, different kinds of animal species and I've put um, Acrididae which are like Locust insect folks in the in the books Mm -hmm. and they show up here and there and um, they actually are uh, uh, There's a preponderance of them in Mexico, so you'll get to see um, More of them in book nine and some of the different types because there are some different types Um, There are Choroptera which are the bat metasapiens, and they are also all through I should say the Acrididae are also all, also uh, found all through Africa as a uh, worker class and soldiers, and um, they do bureaucratic duty, and, and they're widely deployed in Africa also. Um, the coropter are widely deployed in Central and South America um, and in the uh, Pacific Island region, Australia. There are Ursine Metasapiens. Um, and various, ver- there are different types of Ursine Metasapiens because they had, um, uh, they were able to adapt mo- different species. So you get uh, kind of a black bear type, and then you get a gri- a more, the more rare grizzly type. And actually, Brooke 8 did a, had to do a lot of research about grizzlies to figure out whether or not I could have Eamon do some of the things he does in that book. <laughs> right. I was like, can he, can, could he, you know, reliably do some of these things? And then I watched a video of grizzly bears, like taking a metal, you know, one of those big metal dumpsters in an alleyway and they're just like throwing it around like it's a toy. I'm like, oh yeah. All right then. Um, and then there's canine uh, metasapiens and they're very common everywhere. They're probably the first to be deployed um, or one of the first to be deployed. And they're, they're very common uh, canines have the distinction in the, in that like a handful of drones, they can be unmitigated, which means that they can have, um, they can develop mutations after having been created. They can, they can start to um, change and adapt to environments and there were drones that were deployed like that, and there were canine Metasapiens that were deployed like that. And that's all I can say about that at this time. Um, there's Ichthyic, which are the fish folk Metasapiens. They are almost universally Type 5s and Type 4s, um, but some are Type 3, and uh, some are have have developed the ability to if, if they, if they were to get a factory designation, they would be type six psychics. Um, So most of those are are type four bureaucratic or type five entertainment. And then there's the sphyranic uh, metasapiens. And those are barracuda. Those are the big mean fish folk from Mars that were um, deployed for, Unknown reasons, and they have uh, unmitigated—they have an uh, unmitigated—they have unmitigated uh, mutation in the fact that some of them have been able to procreate. And one of the characters in the book is a child of that.
0: So, for the most part, Metasapiens can't procreate.
1: Uh, that 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 was the way that they were designed. If oh, okay. you grabbed a, a central global government uh, manual and you looked inside, it would tell you that they can't. Um, whether or not Doctor Helmet actually followed through with that edict in the design of Metasapiens mm-hmm. is unknown. It's uh, I've, i like I said, there, there's been some 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 Metasapients and drones by that were. You know, by his design, they had abilities that lay dormant for a long time, even after this, the the central global government fell, and may have been, you know, he he may have uh, not followed orders oh. <laughs> in that regard. So, um, that's that's I left myself an out in case I ever <laughs> want to do something crazy. I don't, have to, I don't have to follow the, the doctrine of the books too closely in that regard if I have any really cool ideas for MetaSapiens. right? Um, and then there's um, been, in talking to people about um, the tabletop RPG, there have been people asking me about other MetaSapien types, mm-hmm. uh, felines and rodents and things like that. I'm not going to say no to people. I may put them in the tabletop game. They may not make an appearance in the books.
0: Oh, I got you. Um, yeah, I guess you could go crazy and really
1: have anything. Yeah, I mean, with there being, um, with with Doctor Helmet having extensive identity tech access and having, even though the quote original one is allegedly dead there are still several more of his replicas out there right and they all have his expertise so anything could happen <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I already talked about our intelligences and terrestrial intelligent agents but if uh, I could talk more unless you got more unless you got a different question
0: well <clears throat> I, w- I, w- I would like to know more about about them I don't remember you Talking about them all that much, um, I didn't know if you wanted to go into the Cabal at all, or
1: yeah, that that is um, the Cabal is a um, secretive order that is made up of very long-lived individuals, and the bulk of them gained their longevity um, by virtue of a way you'll have to read about in the books Mm -hmm. because I don't want to spoil it um, because it's a keen reveal (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and the Cabal has basically been trying to save the world from an impending disaster and they succeed in large part but they do so at the extreme and craved loss of their humanity for the most part and they have uh, a minder and a keeper and they have checks and balances and everything else and it was funny when i was asking people you know if i did a um uh did a role-playing game for yuroboros saga tabletop role-playing game, i asked people what they wanted to play i had people say they wanted to play cabal and i (laughs) and i wondered i was like have you read the books being immortal sounds great uh there's drawbacks.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, but the the cabal is is um, something that I intend to put all of my detail notes for into the tabletop role playing game. So and, and there will also be a um, gallery of all the characters from the books, and there'll probably be a blurb, at least three four paragraphs for each. So if you were like, I had a lot of people ask for a wiki to help them keep track of the characters, and I thought I should just do like a a uh, I should just take all the characters and build NPC profiles for them for the tabletop role-playing game and put them in the game book. Right. So that e- even if you didn't play tabletop role-playing games, but you liked the series, it would be worthwhile to get because you could learn background about all the characters. That's you know even things that are not in the novels. You could learn about the cabal and the three three and four schools of the cabal, and you could learn all about their special things that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could could even look and see how they're tiered and why some of them have the abilities they do and why others don't. And you could learn things about uh, Our Lady Golgotha, um, uh, because obviously I would put her in there. Mm Mm-hmm and her and her associate for for people to learn more about but that would be uh you know it's kind of like at the front of that section of the book i'd be like extreme spoilers if you have not read through you know the end of book nine do not read do not read
0: yeah exactly well i remember (laughs) um i don't know a year or two ago um i i was bugging you about um putting a glossary in these yeah and uh but what what you know, if you're going to make a, a tabletop game of it, that would be really cool to have a source book where you could have, you know, because, yeah, that would be neat. That'd be really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, the the plan is to not only do that, but also for people who want to actually run games, we're going to put many of the locations in the books mm-hmm. in, the ga- in the game book with maps. Um, and... One of the things that I'm going to put in the in the game book with all the various characters is which books they appear in, and in which parts of the timeline they exist. Oh. So uh, that way, if you wanted to ha- if you wanted to run a tabletop role-playing game that was contiguous with the books, you could have you know your party of heroes somewhere else where the character where the other characters aren't. But all that other stuff would be happening in the background as you were playing through um, with your own game. Mm-hmm. So, like, you could actually have your characters meet different NPCs. Um, uh, depend, you know, because some of them obviously die during the mm-hmm. course of different books. But if you had ran your game contiguous with those books, as far as the timeline was concerned, you would have all of those NPC profiles you'd know which book they showed up in which book they they will stop showing up in (laughs) because that that was the end of them Mm -hmm. um and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna put a lot of background information in there that's in the design notes that uh, because i i i do a lot of design for characters to help me write dialogue um one of the one of the feedback some of the feedback i got back early was um that I write pretty good dialogue for for female characters, and I was I was blown away by that. I was like, okay, well, apparently the extreme degree of design work that I did for those characters paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got this—I mean, I got the—I got that feedback from a proofreader that she's gone on to she's, she's got her own fantasy series now. But she was mean to my books when I first showed them to her. Like I sent them to her. I got on back, there were just nothing but a field of red where she told me all the things I'd done wrong. that one really? thing, that one thing <laughs> <laughs> that one thing was what kept me going. I was like, I did something right. Yes. <laughs> but all of that design's gonna go in the game book as much as I can fit in. like I don't want to I don't want to burden people necessarily with a huge book. and in talking to other people helping me on the project some people have suggested that i put like the cabal in their own book and maybe put mars and some of the other um little stations and places in the solar system in their own book Mm -hmm. um as supplements um but i don't know how i don't know how i'm going to split it up I, I, it might be too big for. I don't want. I don't want people to be like, "Oh man, it's a 500-page book." Right. You want $60 for it, or $70 for it, or whatever, whatever I can, whatever I can squeeze um, out of CreateSpace or whoever I decide to go through to publish it. But um, yeah, that's all in the works, uh, and and your glossary is coming—a giant, big glossary. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: What's um, you know. Th- the world that the world that this takes place in the um it's not it's it really you don't mention it or i don't know maybe it's just me but it seems like it's not really mentioned all that much as far as uh what the world is like i mean the 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 stories kind of they seem more centered on the characters living in in this uh in this future time, um, and and I'm you know I'm trying to rack my brain because it's not I don't really consider it post-apocalyptic. It, it's it seems more you know dystopian. Um, there's sort of an apocalyptic event that happens. I think if if I, if I remember, it's just it it seems like, and I'm not trying to say that you don't that you. you I don't even want to say this. I'm not trying to say that um, that. Okay, here's the part I'm gonna to have to edit out because I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say <laughs> that it, it's not like like you don't care about not letting us know. It's just sure. it, it seems like it's very much in the background, and so um, for my sake, I'm I'm really curious as to what. What exactly is going on on good old planet Earth uh, during the during this series you know is it yeah is, is it just kind of a you know run down sort of a you know dystopian thing going on or um, you know what, what what's what's going on
1: well the The world sort of previous to the shutdown, which is when the economic event, Mm -hmm. uh, economic apocalypse befalls the world um, or much of it, uh, the world operated on a debt equity system. And you basically would be born into the world in debt. And your ultimate goal was to figure out how to die with less debt to leave to your kids. And – People invested and bartered on their credit on the basis of that debt equity. Mm -hmm. So in so much as they would earn money, um, they would always be paying against this debt that was just ever present um, in their lives. Either they would have inherited it from uh, their parents after their passing or um, they would have acquired it by by virtue of going to school or learning a trade or uh, things like that. And this sort of trading on on debt as equity is something I didn't think I would see in the real world. It, it's happened. Mm-hmm. It is happening. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and it's it's spooky. Um, I'm actually reading. Um, Peter Phrase's Four Futures book about post-capitalism and just trying to get some, just trying to get, trying to get my, get my wherewithal and understand the economics of the world so that I can move forward with, with books as it's, as the year saga slowly transitions from kind of a, kind of a wrecked and dirty dystopian world to a more post-apocalyptic one or one that is slowly being rebuilt. Mm. I'm not sure how that's going to go after book nine. Depends kind of on on the general vibe I get from the rewrite and the feedback I get back and that sort of thing. But the the at the beginning of the second book, there's two characters and they're having a conversation about one of them going into genealogy so that they can um, continue they can better afflict people with the debt of their uh, relatives. So like your second cousin could kick it and his debt would get transferred to you. And there was the 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 implication there is that um, people would um, basically have to shift their perspectives to have um, a break-even point before they die is the best they can hope for. Right. That they may that they may not they may, that the that the only debt that they pass on to their kids is whatever they incurred being born at the hospital or you know that, that, that they're not carrying your burden and people would work and die their whole lives to get even and that bothered the protagonist enough that um, and and the reason the world is in that shape is that the cabal had uh, sequestered all of the earth's resources towards the goal of saving it Hmm. having that done they were not going to turn the reins back over they were not gonna they were not going to take that money out of sequestration and put it back in the hands of people and let them roll out of this this debt and death cycle and silverstein rebels and decides that he's going to try to reset the global economy and it goes horribly wrong um, and that's kind of, uh, uh it, it is mitigated in, in part by, by their intervention at the end of book one to the degree that there is still hope, but most of the world after the shutdown, um, if your debt equity hits certain thresholds or your degree of debt versus your income hits certain thresholds up against your income it will lock you out of your houses out, out, you get locked out of your own house you get locked out of your vehicles you get locked out of your workplace because your workplace will be defunded and what what happened when the shutdown happened was it, it set everybody's uh, uh, income to zero mm-hmm. basically which tripped all those thresholds and locked people out of their homes and and, and buildings and workplaces all across the world and some places it's not a good... Some places in the world it's not good to be caught outside. Um, so there was a lot of death and starvation and, and super, super bad things started to happen. Um, there's a limited number of telemechanics, uh, psychics that can interact with machines, but not very many with the expertise to override the um, locks on, you know say, a building that had been locked down or defunded, and um, the there are parts of the world that weren't hooked up to the central global government's economy system, and while they took a hit because they lost all their trading partners, a lot of them had enough self-sufficiency to limp on, and most of those countries were kind of in the Pacific Islands, a couple of places in Asia, uh, uh, South and Central America and those are the places where book nine is going to start to head towards to see how those places um, fare under the current conditions because whenever there is a shortage of resources invariably people will get desperate and fight over it unless there's some very enlightened alternative presented to them um so from the uh from the your, your average person um, in an urban area, would be in big trouble. Um, it would have been chaos. Right. And if you were in a place where the sea level had encroached and been walled off, and there was large sections of of India and the Middle East and um, parts of Africa that had these big walls erected to hold the sea level back, when the power went out and those those pumping stations failed, millions of people drowned. Um, and had no recourse. So people that were living in wilder areas um, that were more self-sufficient in these regions, and there were lots of places that had that sort of self-sufficiency um, throughout Europe and Russia and North America and Asia. There were places that had some of that self-sufficiency, places that were you know, self-sustaining, green, off-the-grid type places, but those sorts of places had to um, either figure out how to repel borders real fast mm-hmm. or figure out how to make their resources stretch further, and a lot of those places, because humans have this predisposition to f- fight with each other over slim resources, a lot of those places went away in the chaos. Um because people you know, had old grudges and grievances. Because um, even though the central global government had united a lot of the world, some of, those, some of the, the member states of the central global government still had a lot of autonomy and still didn't like being told what to do and still had grudges with other member states. That, that, some of that plays out in the books here and there. But like, um, as far as how it would influence regular people, um, I leaned heavily on that through the through a lot of the books, and I tried really hard to go to the street level in Book Seven and on Mars. Mm-hmm. Like Mars gets talked about a lot, and there's some flashbacks for Mars, but I really wanted to tell a story about regular people on Mars, or the the and, and yet, you know, no, none of the none of the protagonists in Book Seven are regular. I would say, but um, I wanted to. I wanted people to kind of get a street view of Mars, and um, I feel like you're probably right that that needed to happen on Earth as well, and in different places. And I did it at the beginning of book two, when the shutdown hits and transports are falling out of the sky and people are running for running in terror, and uh, Abby is Abby is is screaming at guys in 3-piece suits and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know all that kind of stuff and I, and I feel like um, there's a lot of that that um, like I would have to go back and look but I think a lot of that probably ended up on the cutting room floor there's a lot of stuff that was really good detail that I had to cut to get inside my word limit because I like publishing at a 65,000 word limit I like having I like having these books uh, consumable in a weekend. Mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe read the end at work on your lunch hour on Monday type thing. Um, and it's, it, it is a regret. And it sounds like if you have that question, other people do too. And maybe, um, that perspective should be put in the game book yeah, or. Well,
0: <clears throat> yeah. And, and that might just be me. It takes me, it takes me so long to, um, <laughs> to, to read a book anymore that, uh, you know, I may have well just forgotten, you know, a lot of what, uh, of what was in them. Um, But uh, I just always had, I I don't recall, you know, for me, I just, I I don't recall hearing a whole lot about, you know, know, after the shutdown happened, you know, what, I don't recall, you know, reading a lot of uh, what was going on um, to, to the rest of the world outside of what was happening to the to the characters.
1: Yeah, it, it got it boiled it boiled down to um, uh, Brooke telling Kale reports okay. and damage reports and casualties and yeah. and the street level stuff was really just in Helsinki and Port Montaigne and not uh, there was not a lot. Um, there was not a lot of detail given to the environment mm-hmm. for the common person in the world, other than uh, Kale and Brooke interacting over over numbers on a data slate, and and occasionally talking to people that were uh, maintaining communes or co-ops or or uh, organizational arms of Euroboros Financial, and um, so like the the picture comes out. Kind of like you're reading it from a spreadsheet, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how the characters in the books were kind of having to consume some of that, um, you know, without, you know, know, short of traveling and then having them relate anecdotes and and small short stories to each other. Yeah, Um, and that makes sense. It's still um, there's a lot of the there's a lot of the fine detail especially with the cabal that um, did not get related. They kind of I, I wouldn't say that they end up being faceless bad guys in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, especially not Kaspersky. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, some of them are kind of are, are kind of shadow, you know, I, I wanted them to be shadowy boogeyman. I wanted them I wanted the reader to have the same, apprehension that the characters had and that there' are these very unknown quantities yeah. and it from the perspective of designing the book um, uh, it's and I mean it's entirely likely that a lot of the uh, uh, sort of workaday folks outside of Port Montaigne and Helsinki don't get the spotlight and a lot of that takes place in the first three books, some four five and six. And then all of seven is Mars. All of eight is a small, uh, area in Montana, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, well, yeah. Um, and that, that kind of gave me the, uh, the opportunity to do a little bit more on the ground with people that were self-sustaining and surviving in the, in the, uh, uh, in the aftermath of the shutdown, but it was, um, yeah,
0: I think the folks in Apgar, the only thing they wouldn't notice is, or the only thing they'd notice is, uh, where do our
1: tourists go? <laughs> 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 yeah. I, well, I, 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 like, I like Montana. I'm from Idaho. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Montana's our, our, uh, our, our, our cozy neighbor. Yep. And, uh, um really like Montana and visiting Montana, and I really like the people there and um, getting to set a book there, especially book eight being I, that was my that was my first attempt at writing a sci-fi Western mm-hmm. and uh, I, I mean, that's how I wanted it to feel. And uh, doing all the design and research for that for that book was probably the most fun I've had since probably book four.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think I've told you it's, it, <clears throat> it's probably my, I, I, I fight with either book one or, or book eight being my favorite. And I think book eight's my favorite, but I'm biased because, you know, it literally takes place <laughs> right up the road. And, yep. uh, and so like, like I was telling you, you know, being able to you know, you're talking about Whitefish, and you're talking about Apgar, and you're talking about the North Fork, and, and you know, these are places where I I go all the time, you know, I work in these areas. <clears throat> and uh, so, you know, for me, it had a, a, a very different feeling than you know, I was able to relate to it on a very, very personal level. And,
1: uh, and besides
0: the fact it, it, it is kind of a western, and it's got Eamon, and Eamon's Eamon's my man. Well, it's Metasabian.
1: He's, he's a, he's a big favorite. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh he has a lot of fans. Yeah. He's an <laughs> the, awesome character. The, he t- it took a while for him to get his, to kind of get his own book. And I, and I know a lot of people want Ezra mm-hmm. to kind of, to kind of have his own book. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm not going to say that that's going to happen. I'm not going to say that that's not going to happen either.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the uh, uh, Ezra was designed um, to kind of always have Taylor and Silverstein around, mm-hmm. and have them to lean on. Like he's not. I'm not saying that he wouldn't be an interesting character to follow on a solo mission. Um, it just would be. It would be. Uh, there would be some mental acrobatics for me to figure out how to um, set him up to wander alone without them. And in having them appear in book seven, um, I tried it out. I I don't have them in a room together a lot in that book uh, to just sort of um, see what it would like to write dialogue for him talking to somebody. And in situations with having to talk to somebody outside their little trio, It's not Silverstein (laughs) doing the talking Mm -hmm. or Ezra menacing somebody. It's Ezra maybe trying to have a supportive or more social conversation with someone. And that happens in book seven. And I haven't gotten a lot of feedback on book seven yet. Um, I'm almost afraid that it's bad and no one wants to tell me (laughs) because it was so far a departure. In some it, ways, from it these was different.
0: It was it was very different. I don't certainly don't think it was bad at all, but yeah, it was a different a different book.
1: The uh, I, in in doing the research for that book, um, I, I left an indelible mark on my soul just because I went and read all I could about things like what it would be like to be a woman riding on a on a subway mm-hmm. in, a, in a in a place like that, you know, yeah. because they're there are real-world places that have the the urban density that the Mars colony has, and I did not like a lot of what I found, yeah. and uh, and looking at a lot of the grittiness of 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 uh, kind of a cloistered urban environment, you know, mixed urban commercial penal environment like that, it was like, I, you know, there's a reason that Ezra hates Mars, mm-hmm. and and re- repeats that. That that's whenever they talk about Mars, he's like, I hate Mars. Yeah. There's a reason he does, and and in in designing Mars, I always kind of wanted it to be the the colony out in the solar system that was kind of the the boogeyman, mm-hmm. and would be good for running flashbacks because it was kind of a place of high chaos and lots of action and intrigue and everything else. And then getting to write a whole book there, um, it was it was heavy. Like I got to the end of that book and was like, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made it and um, the, the idea that um, Mars plays a pretty big role in book nine but there's going to and there's going to be um, the, the main reason that there's going to actually be chapters that cross over into events going on on Mars is that I've had a lot of people tell me that they like Pearl yeah and they would like to see, they would like more Pearl they would yeah. like to see Pearl do more things and, I was, and I'm more than glad to oblige because she's a there's a reason I put her up front on the cover because um, she really kind of is my from, from book 7 she's kind of my favorite character I think a lot of people like too.
0: She's a doll yeah she's a doll um, do you have an ending in sight for this I mean do you have you know are you thinking this is how I'm going to end this thing
1: um no not really i i what i see myself doing is probably writing book nine producing the tabletop role-playing game um i've been talking for a while about doing a point and click uh video game that's based on yuroboros saga that would be cool um Maybe doing like a stealth game with Ezra, or a side scroller with Eamon where he's fighting bad guys, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, doing some kind of point-and-click game, or maybe it's just an exploration game where you're wandering around Port Montaigne trying to find clues. And I love painting big environments. In all in all of the games that we built so far, we have what's called a garage a garage scene, and it's the part of the game where you go in and you're able to modify your terraformer mm-hmm. or Rewire your circuitry on your orbital, or get re-gear your agent, or put different things. And I always like paint these backgrounds um, uh, of like like for the for the rickshaw game, particularly. There's this really cool underground garage with an elevator, and the, there's a place where the rickshaw's sitting. And then you can you have your driver sitting there on the screen, and you can change your driver, and then change all the things on your on your rig, and it changes the way your your rickshaw work, looks. And I painted this background for it, and I was like, um, getting some pretty good Yoruba saga, Port Montaigne vibes from doing that. And doing a point-and-click game that was more atmospheric and, ex- and based on exploration, where I was like, being rendering Midtown mm-hmm. or Downtown or the drone tunnels beneath. Even that um, uh, uh, tickles my tickles my my creative mind in just the right places. Um, so I I think it. It'll probably be book nine, tabletop game, maybe a video game. And then I'm going to work on my, um, I'm going to work. I'm going to circle back to my post-apocalyptic books called Dreams and Echoes and probably do three of those and a, and a tabletop role-playing game for that book series. And then, um, and I have all those books already written. Uh, I wrote them before I wrote Your Bar Saga. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, the it. tabletop games already all laid out and everything. I, ju- I just... Those are kind of my babies. I, those are the books that I wrote first and then I wrote Your Bar Saga to prototype the self-publishing <laughs> so that I could do those right. <laughs> oh, I had
0: no idea that you had a PA series that you were... That, that, yeah, that I, have you a, done.
1: I have a... I have a... I have a... a, a, um, I I, I don't know how to really describe it. It's almost like a neo-romantic post-apocalyptic story where um, the end of the world is... uh, I don't want to give it away. The end of the world is not a nuclear bomb or a zombie virus or... Uh, financial Apocalypse. It's, kind it's of not, something... Not your typical... It's It's got kind of a... It's got kind of a fantasy element to it. Um, oh. There's magic. Ooh. Um, but it's basically based on a world where the world ends and ends badly. And there are people in the aftermath trying to survive. Um, and I built... A uh, 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 system of, of handling arcane events and and all the all the metaphysics of of how the world would work, and I actually prototyped it both tabletop and I did a live action role playing game based on it as well, where people we actually mirror mapped the game world onto the downtown area where we lived, and had people wander around as their characters and interact. Oh wow. Um, to prototype it and it was very successful and people liked it very much most of my most of my uh uh i, I everybody i've had read it has said there's i've never read anything like this oh wow it's amazing I'm so intrigued. i'm 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 scared because it's not um <clears throat> it's not post-apocalyptic in 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 the way that uh fallout and uh and some other you know the the it's not uh, a traditional post-apocalyptic setting and it it um i had to read a lot of uh i had to read a lot of tennyson and a lot of blake and a lot of uh poetry to write some of the dialogue for it because there are characters in it that sound like they're out of shakespeare Mm-hmm. um so some of the dialogues very, very arcane, and the interactions are very uh, 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 li- literally people are having conversations with each other across the void using the uh, using the echoes of their beings, and you know stuff like that. So I'm oh, trying wow. to I had to I had to engage uh, the you know a poetic language to to be able to write the write and describe parts of that book. But I'm as soon as I'm done putting my baby in the lights. Mm-hmm. My intent is to circle back and do more Euroboro saga, either to expand the pen and paper game, write more novels, maybe write a spin-off series. Um, like I'm I don't intend I don't have any intent to go to a certain point and say, I'm done with Euroboro saga, I'm going to generate no more media for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is a project that I will probably always add to either in the form of new books, video game, uh, pen and paper role-playing game, more supplements for the pen and paper role-playing game. Um, I had somebody on Twitter, I forget who it was, say that they wanted like playing cards or they wanted like like cards with the characters. Mm-hmm. And I thought pff, that would have been a good thing. That would have been a good way to do a glossary too, yeah. you know, to have it. A deck of cards with all the all the prominent characters on them. Um, or what about and, doing
0: like a customizable card game? Or, or are those not really your gig?
1: I um, played Magic the first year it came out. Magic the Gathering the first year it came out. I played Vampire the Masquerade card mm-hmm. game. The little blood tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, I still build. I still play games that are deck builder games where you buy them in the and uh so I, I have a lot of experience playing those games mm-hmm. i've never designed one but having like having one like based on the cabal where you're different members of the cabal and you're trying to figure out which of you is actually trying to save the world and which one of you is the bad guy and or or having a having a uh, having a like a, a like a city building or a city maintenance game that was a deck building game um based on books 4 and 5 or something like that like those sound like terrible ideas never mind <laughs> terrible ideas <laughs> those are things only i would like <laughs> um <laughs> I would, I would, if I was going to do a collectible card game, I would seek consultation from people, from the other people, to find out what would, what would not be a bad idea. Oh, <laughs> but any, anything is possible though. Like, I, I, in in terms of adding to things for people to enjoy, that um, will further expand the Urabora saga. I don't have any plans to. I don't have a definite. I'm not going to make any more things for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that there'll be a book ten. There might be though. Um, maybe after I've written book nine, I'll circle back around to all the people that I know are my are my big fans on Twitter and see what they think. Yeah. See what see what they, see what based on the end of nine, what their expectation is. Right. See if they want it, more. Gotta have more. Hit the social media if they're like we want a spin-off series. We want to know what's going on in these other parts of the world that have not been traveled in the, in the first 9 books or mm. we want uh, uh we love these characters and want them to have their own book the way Eamon did. Right. Where they get their own book but it continues the the overall story from book 9 going forward. Things like that yeah. um are possible. And I um I've kind of, I'm, it's kind of a good place to be at book eight because I've kind of already done everything that I want to do and feel pretty good about, uh, feel good, pretty good about the series. Um, and now it kind of feels like I have enough people reading it and enjoying it that I could turn to my readership and say, Hey, what do you think I should do next? Yeah. and, and, Sort of sort of pandered to my fans and my and my friends, um, a little bit on that in that regard. So, no, no, I don't think there's any definitive this is going to end um, point for me. I think I'm always gonna. There may there's gonna be a there's gonna be a gap when I put my baby into the lights, but other than that, probably gonna keep adding to it.
0: Okay. All right. Well. I think we're gonna go ahead and, and shut her down. Where can people go to find you? I noticed that you don't have a website. Um, so where can people go
1: to check you out? Um, I'm on Tumblr. Um, I'm I'm at ArthurHWalker.tumblr.com, and I put a lot of stuff on Tumblr. Um, if I was to say it, if I was gonna say it you know, I have a website where, um, like a lot of, I've had people ask, do you have more artwork? Mm-hmm. Where do you put your digital artwork? I put it on Tumblr. Um, where do you talk about the gear you use to build your things, to work on video games and write your books? I put that on Tumblr. Um, I do most of my interaction with, uh, my readership on Twitter and I'm on, uh, Twitter is Arthur H Walker. Um, and uh, that's a good place to find me. Um, yeah. Tumblr and Twitter. That's where I would go to find me. Okay. Well, this has been awesome.
0: I'm I, so I, glad. Yeah, I, I just... <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I had... Yeah, this was just really cool. This was so long... In the, in the in the making, I've wanted to talk to you for so long now, and uh, I'm just thrilled, and I'm so excited to 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 learn that that you got a PA series or you know a trilogy coming out mm-hmm. or at some point, um, that's awesome. Really glad to hear that, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to to talk to me tonight.
1: It was my pleasure. It was very productive and made me think about a lot of things that I hadn't thought about before. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk to you. And it was kind of really cool to just kind of see you face to face and yeah. listen to your other podcasts and heard your voice. But it's kind of nice to put a face to the voice, too, and and, and just have a sense of you now because we talk a lot on Twitter. Yeah. So it, it has been my pleasure for sure. Thank you very much for letting me do this. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And with
0: that, I will say goodnight and uh, take care. Take care. All right, Wanderers, thanks for listening. You can find my blog at fromthewastes11811.wordpress.com. You can also find me on Twitter at fromthewastes or at last underscore librarian. I'm also on Facebook at facebook wastes. You can find this podcast at Podbean, iTunes, Player FM, pretty much all podcast players out there. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. Until next time, Wanderers, take cover and take care.